We're continuing in the book of Titus. Titus is written by the Apostle Paul. It's written to his assistant, who, wouldn't you know it, is named Titus. He's left Titus on the island of Crete. There are multiple towns on the island of Crete. There are multiple churches on this island. And it is Titus' job to, uh, to complete, to put into order what remained uh, left undone. And, and Titus was to instruct church leaders. He was to appoint elders in the churches. He was to teach Christians how to live in a way that was consistent with their profession of faith in Christ. He was to uh, silence false teachers. And in Titus chapter 2, what we see is that Jesus has a people who are His own that did not exist as the people of God before Jesus worked in their life. And they have been created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that they should walk in them. To, to borrow from Ephesians chapter 2 there, that is, that is why they are created. They are created in Christ for good works. They are created to be focused on their Creator, to be focused on the purpose of the One who made them and carrying out the task that He has assigned them so that He looks good. And so we're going to jump in to Titus chapter 2, verse 11. And we're going to read through verse 15. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works." Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Titus is told by Paul that grace has appeared. It's appeared. Think of of like a, a burst of light, like light shining forth in darkness. This grace has appeared. What is the grace of God that has appeared? Well, the grace of God is not Jesus Christ but rather the message about Jesus Christ and God's plan of saving a people for Himself, saving them out of their sin. And Jesus Christ is the heart or the center of that message. But that that message, that grace is the message of Christ and God's plan of saving a people for Himself. This grace or this light that appeared, it, it did not precede the incarnation. What that means is, This grace of God did not appear before Christ came in the flesh, before the birth of Christ. Although it did precede, it did come before the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. This message of God saving a people for Himself, this message of which Christ is at the center of, did not uh, appear, break in like light and darkness before the Incarnation, but it did appear before the cross. John the Baptist, who is the forerunner of Jesus, who came to prepare the way for Jesus. It was foretold of John by his father, Zechariah, 
in Luke chapter 1, verse 76. This is the beginning, the appearing of this grace. Verse 76, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. John's father says over him at his birth, this is what's going to happen. The message of salvation is, is going to appear to us like a sunrise, God's mercy like a sunrise to give light to those who sit in darkness. The grace of God appeared. The message of salvation serves as light. John's message, simply put, was this. Turn from your life of sin. Be baptized as a sign that you are converting to becoming a worshiper of God. And then, believe in the One coming after me. John also pointed to the One coming after him. So this light is appearing. This grace is appearing. Now when Jesus arrives on the scene during His earthly ministry, this, this light grows in intensity. This message grows in clarity because Jesus reveals God the Father and He is the One who saves. In John chapter 11, verse 25, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in Me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in Me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, the woman he was talking to, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. After Jesus died as a sacrifice for sins, he came back to life, he appeared to his disciples, he, dis he ascended into heaven. After all of that took place, this grace that's appeared, this message of salvation is completely clear, at least clear enough to the point that in Acts chapter 2, when one of Jesus' followers, Peter, the Apostle Peter, is asked by his audience, what shall we do to be saved? Peter is able to clearly and succinctly answer them and say, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. So the grace of God has appeared. The message of how to be made right with God. How to be saved. There's no more speculation. There's no more wondering by anyone, is my observance of the Old Testament law sufficient to be made right with God? There's no more types and shadows. There's no more looking at the Old Testament and trying to figure out who God's promised one, what the Savior whom God would send to save His people would be like. There's no more mystery. It's clear the grace of God has appeared. The favor and kindness of God that shows us how we can be forgiven of our sins and brought into right relationship with Him and know Him as our Creator and as our Savior and as our Father. There's no mystery. It's clear. It's appeared. It's dawned upon us. It's dawned to us. And it's to bring salvation for all. Bringing salvation for all people. Now this, this passage is a little problematic for some people because of how universal it is in its scope. 
The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And there's a couple questions some people ask as a result of this passage, of that particular line in that, in that verse. Well, does this mean that all people will be saved? There, there are people who believe that, who call themselves Christians. They're called, when you know it, universalists. And they believe that, in fact, everyone will be saved. They, they believe that uh, there is no one in hell. And the most extreme of these uh, people believe that even Satan himself would be absolutely forgiven because of what Jesus did. And that he could. That they, they, give, they give Satan the exception, saying that Satan will probably go to hell, but he could be forgiven. But no one else will go to hell because they, they all will be forgiven. There's, there's a guy named Carlton Pearson. Anyone remember Carmen, the, uh, the mu- musician? Like, dun-dun-dun, you know, Carmen? The champion! Carlton Pearson was his pastor. And it's a church out in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And there was like 6,000 people. Seven, maybe 7,000 people. Uh, and Tulsa is like charismatic Mecca. So you start a charismatic church and it's like, it's like a Chia Pet, just add water. And, uh, and Carlton Pearson was a pastor of a church out there and uh, just really struggled with the fact that a loving God would send people to hell. And he said, you know what? I don't, I don't really think that he would. And so he started preaching that no one would go to hell. And uh, he could write a book on how to shrink a church because even some of the most crazy charismatics knew that that is not scriptural. And so his church went from like 7,000 to like 17, like in a couple months. Uh, but there are people who, who would look at this passage like Carlton Pearson and say, the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all. Does that mean that... that no one will go to hell, that all people will be saved. There's other people who will look at this passage and say, does that mean that God has uh, merely uh, made salvation possible for all, though not securing it for any? Does that mean God has merely made salvation potential, though not actually securing it for any? And there are people who would look at this passage and ask some of those questions. And perhaps you're looking at this and you're thinking, I, I never really thought about it that way. I, that didn't cross my mind. And if that's you, that's probably a good thing. Because the fact of the matter is, when the Holy Spirit inspired the Apostle Paul to write this passage, will everyone be saved? Did God actually make salvation possible for all, though not securing it for any? Those things were not in view. That's not what this text is about. We can try to split hairs based upon our theology, but what this text is really about, the universality of it, uh, the phrase, all people, is to bring final clarity, partly to bring final clarity to the extent of God's grace. Remember, we started this whole thing, what is the grace of God, the message of God's plan? The first text I referred to was John the Baptist's father, who was a Jew, speaking about his son, who was a Jew, who was preparing the way for Jesus, who was a Jew, who got up and preached to people who were Jews, who was followed by Peter, who was a Jew, who got up and preached on the day of Pentecost to people who were Jews. The grace of God has appeared, and up to that point, it had primarily appeared to Jews. And so when Paul says, bringing salvation for all people, he's giving clarity to the grace of God that the favor of God that saves us 
due to nothing on our part, but completely on all that Christ has accomplished, this light that is dawned to those who sit in darkness, this message of how to be made right with God, is not simply for Jews. Jesus appears to Paul and says, Paul, I'm going to have you be my witness and I'm going to uh, have you tell people that I've appeared to you and I'm also going to appear to you again, Paul. And in verse 20, or verse 17 of Acts 26, he said, I will appear to you, verse 17, delivering you from your people, who are the Jews, and from the Gentiles, which entails everyone who is ethnically not a Jew, to whom I am sending you. I am sending you to non-Jews to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. The grace of God has appeared. The message of how to be made right with God has appeared like light in darkness, pointing to the one who is light in darkness, Jesus. And Jesus is saying to Paul, I'm going to send you to non-Jews and you're going to preach about me and they are currently in darkness and they are currently under the power of Satan and they are going to hear the Gospel and it's going to appear, it's going to enlighten them, it's going to be as light in darkness and they will turn from darkness to light, from Satan to God. This message is bringing salvation for all people, meaning no longer just Jews. Also, in verses 1 through 10 of chapter 2, we've seen instructions on how Christians should live. There were specifics for old men, old women, younger women, younger men, and even slaves. And so Paul follows all of that up with this, and therefore all people means not only uh, all people, not just Jews, but all people, every status in life, every social status in life. The gospel is good news for Jew and non-Jew. The gospel is good news for young and old. The gospel is good news for man and for woman. The gospel is good news for free and slave. All people. It's all-inclusive. There's no type of person who's left out. The grace of God has appeared so that everyone might know how they can be made right with their Creator who they are currently not right with. Jesus died as a substitute for sinners. All of us are sinners, unable to rectify our broken condition and broken relationship with God. But if we'll believe that Jesus lived the life of sinless obedience to God that we haven't, and that He died in our place taking the punishment that we rightly deserve for our sins, if we believe that He did all this and came back to life and lives to save those who call on His name, and we'll do just that, call on His name, then what He did for us, no matter who we are, no matter what we've done, will be good for us. When that message of light when that grace of God, when the salvation, the message of salvation had to be made right with God appears to people when they hear it, it's good for them if they will believe it. It's good for all people, no matter who they are, no matter where they are in the world, no matter what age they live in. It's good for all people. It's available for all people. It will work for anyone. But it works 
effectively in those who receive it. Because it isn't just a message to keep people from going to hell. It isn't just a message to get people saved. The grace of God, the message of salvation, of God's grace, His unmerited favor, kindness, and blessing, bringing salvation to those who will believe, continues to work in those who believe. It trains us how to walk in the light. It trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Those are very broad categories. Ungodliness and worldly passions. Lots of things fall under those two headings. And ungodliness, plain and simple in its most basic definition, is to live with a disregard for God. To live with a disregard for God. Ungodliness is not just uh, if you're a man dressed like a woman and do ridiculously... Uh, perverted acts. That's ungodly. Yeah, it is ungodly. But it doesn't have to be that extreme to be ungodly. Ungodliness is simply living with a disregard for God. And it's contrasted, we're being called out of that, it's contrasted with godliness, self-control, and uprightness. So the grace of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ is that Christ has paid for our sin, rescuing us from God's wrath, but also that He's delivered us from the kingdom of darkness and the power of sin and Satan. And as the grace has appeared in darkness, we respond to it, leaving darkness, walking into light, and it trains us to continue to walk in the light as He is in the light. And we are to walk in the light. We are to exhibit godliness, self-control, and uprightness in the present age. So, Jesus, by His death, burial, and resurrection, has saved us from sin's penalty. We no longer stand underneath the wrath of God. That's been removed. Jesus absorbed that for us. We've been clothed in His righteousness. He has also saved us from sin's power. Sin is no longer our master. Sin no longer has dominion over us. That doesn't mean that we don't ever sin. That doesn't mean that we're not tempted. We continue to wrestle with indwelling sin. Uh, Read chapter 7 of Romans and ask yourself if that describes anything you've ever felt since becoming a Christian. And you will probably say yes. And so even though sin's power has been broken from off of our lives, we are growing in our experience of that. And then someday we will be saved from sin's presence. Temptation to sin will be completely absent. The effects of sin will be completely absent and we will rise. That will be at the resurrection. But the grace of God is training us now to experience the freedom from sin which Jesus has purchased for us, and that's happening in now, the present age. But the present age doesn't just talk about a a window of time, but talks about the world in general as well. And there is a condition of 
the present age, the age in which we live, the culture, the society, the people among whom we live. And this jumps uh, cultural boundaries and time limits. The present age, the condition of it, is this. Jesus says in John chapter 3, This is the judgment. This is the verdict. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his works should be exposed. So this is the condition of the present age. It was the condition of the present age when Jesus walked the earth. It was condition of the present age Excuse me. When the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to Titus on the island of Crete, it's the, uh, the condition of the present age for all of us who live in the 63401 zip code, who live within the United States, who live on the face of the earth today, that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all, but people who, uh, who are of this present age, they hate the light. They hate this grace that's appeared. They hate the grace of God. Their works are evil. They don't want to respond to it because it will expose them for what they are. Though the grace has appeared and light has come into the world, those who are of the present age, namely non-Christians, hate the light. They love the darkness. They are ungodly, meaning that their lives, they live their lives with a disregard for God and they follow worldly passions. And the Bible says in 1 John that worldly passions entail the lust of the flesh, or the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride in possessions. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride in possessions. Those are worldly desires. That's the condition of the present age. But we're to be trained by grace. We're to be trained by the gospel message. We're to be living out of the message of salvation that has appeared and the work that it's doing in our life. So how should our response be in the present age where everyone else is like this and hates the light? What should our response be? Borrowing from Peter in 1 Peter 2.11, he tells the Christians there to live as sojourners and exiles. So they're strangers to the present age. They live in the present age among these people who hate the light, but they're strangers to that. They don't belong here. They are to abstain from the passions of the flesh, from worldly desires, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride in possessions. They are to keep their conduct among the Gentiles. In this passage, that refers to just non-Christians, not specifically non-Jews, but just non-Christians. They are to keep their conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when the non-Christians speak evil against the Christians, speak of them as evildoers, that everyone can see their good deeds and glorify God on the day of His visitation. Everyone can see that there really is something different about Christians, that they are really being trained, that they are really being changed by the grace of God. Christians are trained by the grace of God to walk in the light and to regard God in everything because this world is not our home. 
We are strangers, aliens, pilgrims in the world. We are not of the world. The Bible says that the whole world lies under the power or the influence of the evil one, namely Satan, but that Christians are to be filled with the Holy Spirit, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, under the influence of Christ. We are excluded from the world. We lie under the influence of Christ. We are not of this world, so we await eagerly, longingly, the return of Christ, which is what this passage in Titus says, that we are renouncing these things, that we are growing in in, in godliness, uprightness, and self-control as we await the blessed hope, the appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. We are awaiting the return of Christ. We are not just awaiting heaven. We are not just awaiting that day when we die and we are reunited with our loved ones who put their trust in Christ and we are worshiping around the throne of God and there is no no tear, there is no crying and no sorrow. We are not just awaiting that, a picture from the book of Revelation. We are are awaiting the return of Christ where Jesus uh, stands where Jesus is seated on His throne of judgment, where all people are gathered before Him, where evil is punished, where righteousness is rewarded, where those whose names in the Lamb's book of life are brought to be with their Savior, where the earth is purged with fire and there is a new heaven and a new earth and there will be no sun, for light will come from God Himself. He will live among His people. Not just uh, angels and harps and something in an unseen realm, but we're talking about where I stand right now being part of the New Jerusalem. I'm awaiting a completely redeemed Hannibal. I'm awaiting a new heaven and a new earth. When Jesus comes back, that's all going to happen. If you want to believe the the Timothy LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins model, that's okay. But I think it's all going to happen a little bit quicker than that. I don't think we're going to have to wait seven years plus a thousand. So I'm awaiting that. Christians, we're awaiting that. And regardless of what your view of, of those numbers and dates and stuff are, ultimately, we are awaiting new heavens, new earth, new Jerusalem, heaven on earth, God with His people. We are awaiting the return of Christ and for all of those things to be set in motion. But there are, there are a couple common errors among Christians regarding all of this. Remember, the grace has appeared. It's brought salvation. It's training us to walk in the light. And we are aliens and strangers in the present age. We are awaiting the return of Christ. But there are several common errors among Christians or those who profess to be Christians. The first is to live in the world, I should add this, uh, and be of the world. Live in the world and be of the world. Jesus says that his people are to be in the world, but not of the world. They are to be among the people in the world, but they are not to be like the people in the world. They live in the present age, but they are to be different. The first error is people who call themselves Christians, they live in the world, and they are of the world, and they are focused on the present age. Let me explain that before we go on to the next one. This means people who live among the people who are not Christians. And they look and act and live exactly like the people 
who are not Christians, and their focus is on this life. And so, I want to get a good degree, so I can get a good job, so that I can have a good spouse, so that I can get a good house, and that I can have a good family, and that I can continue in my good job, so that I climb the corporate ladder, so that I have a good 401k, so that I have a good retirement, so that we can have a nice uh, uh, vacation home, and so that we can visit lots of places, and so that we can be very comfortable, and I can have all the stuff that I've dreamed of since I was a little boy, and I can be an old man with lots of toys. I live in the world, of the world, and I'm focused on the present age. There is no real longing for more or for other, I should say, for other, for different, for the return of Christ. The second common error among Christians is to uh, live in the world, not of the world. So, so that's good. We're, uh, we're around uh, people who are not Christians, and we are not uh, uh, identical to them in all ways of living, but we're still focused on the present age. So I'm among non-Christians. Uh, my life is lived as a, as a Christian. I, I'm, I, you're able to identify me from my non-Christian neighbors, but still, everything is about acquisition of wealth, possessions, and comfort. And so I want Jesus to come back. But not before I've gotten married and get to enjoy all the pleasures of marriage. You know, I, I re- remember at the time saying, I want Jesus to come back, just not before I get married. That's an experience I want to have. And, um, or some of the experiences that go with. And so we're, we're focused on the present age. Focused on the present age. And I want to get married, and I want to have kids, and I want to have a nice home, and I want to have nice stuff, and na-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Comfort, wealth, acquisition, and still grow old and have lots of toys, and then die and go home to be with Jesus. <laughs> Hallelujah. I'll jump from AARP to I'm in the Lord's army. I'll go to be with Jesus once I'm, I'm done. You know, somewhere before uh, nursing home and colostomy bag, I'll be ready to go home with Jesus. But, but until then, I want to enjoy the pleasures of life, not in an ungodly way, but you know, I can be filthy rich and have lots of stuff and still, still give a little here and there, love Jesus and do my Bible study and go on a mission trip here or there. And I can still do all that. So that's the second Second error. The third error is not in the world, not of the world, uh, but focused on the age to come. And so this is like, well, we're all going to move to some land 10 miles north of Hannibal, and we're going to build a huge compound, and we're just going to pray all day that Jesus would come back quickly. And so we're not focused on the age to come, and we're not of the world. We are, identi- we are distinctly different than non-Christians. But we're not among non-Christians. And we are worthless to the world. Christians are supposed to be good for the world. It should be a benefit to the world. Paul said to Christians, I, 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 go, I desire to go and be with the Lord, but it would be better for you that I be here. But you know, it's that way for, non, uh, for non-Christians too. 
Christians should desire to go and be with the Lord, but it is better for non-Christians that we stay here to live and to love, to carry out the great commandment, to love God with our everything and to love our neighbor as ourself. The world doesn't know how to love their neighbor as themselves. They know how to ring a bell. They know how to throw change in a bucket. They know how to have food drives. And some people know how to give a lot. And shame on us, they give a lot more of their lives, blood, sweat, and tears than we do. But they don't do it because of the God that we love. And so when they get ticked off at people, they have no motivation left we can have a greater longevity in loving people because we don't just love them for their sake, we love them for God's sake and because of God's love for us. And so it's good for the world that we are in the world. It should be. And, and if, if they're not experiencing that, then shame on us. We should repent. We're probably not lining up with a, as a disciple of Jesus. So what is the correct view? The correct view is I'm in the world. So I actually can name for you people who are not Christians that know me and that have some type of relationship with me. I actually have things that are on my calendar that are not just church activities and small group fellowship Bible studies. I actually have interaction with sinners. Dare I say it? We are not pharisaical Jews who are afraid to rub elbows with people who are not as holy as us because somehow their sin would contaminate us, but rather we are like Jesus. It would be a good thing for people to accuse us of being drunkards because then we would know that we're around the right crowd. We're around the people that Jesus would have been around. Isn't that what they called him? A drunkard and a glutton? So we should be in the world, but we're not of the world. You can call me a drunkard, but if you actually came to the party and and watched you'd see that I don't get drunk. We're in the world. We're not of the world. We are uh, easily distinguishable from those in the world who live for worldly pleasures, the desires of the flesh, the, uh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of possessions. And yet we're living with a focus on the age to come. Does that mean that you don't go to school to get a good job? No. Does that mean you shouldn't buy a nice house? Not necessarily. Does that mean you shouldn't have retirement? No. But but how much of your focus is on that stuff? And how much of the time do you ask yourself, how much can I give away? How much can I sacrifice so the gospel goes to others? How much can I do with my life and my time that glorifies God and serves others as opposed to bringing comfort to me? You know, John Piper says, Jesus saves us from the American dream. And we need to be saved not only from our sin, but from the American dream. It's like a stinking cancer of materialism and idolatry. And so we should be awaiting the blessed hope, which brings to our remembrance that all of this will be burned up by fire someday. So don't love it too much. Or you might be burned up with fire too. Because maybe you love it more than you love Jesus. And maybe you don't really belong to Him. So we're to be in the world, not of the world, living with a focus on the age to come. We're to die to self, live for Christ, and we're freed to save others. This is in line with the mission of Jesus. 
who's creating a people for Himself. In John chapter 10, verse 29, Jesus says, My Father has given them to Me, a people. My Father has given to Me a people who will be My people. They will be My sheep. In John 10.10, He says, I came that they, the sheep, the people that My Father has given to Me, may have life. That they would be My people. That they would have eternal life. That they would leave darkness and cross over into light. In John 10.15, He says, I lay down My life for the sheep. For My people. Jesus is dying to ensure that they are His people. That they leave darkness and go into light. And they cannot do that except by His death. And then in Mark 10.45, He says, The Son of Man came not to be not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Jesus came and lived and died so that He would have a people who are focused on His return, awaiting the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, and that in the meantime, His grace is training us how to walk in light and that we would be zealous for good works. Not that we would just do good works, but that we would be zealous. That word zealous, I think, is even more powerful than the word passion. Zealous. You know, the the zealots uh, who lived uh, before... uh, just a little before, during, and, and after the days when Jesus walked the earth, they were Jewish militants who were, uh, they were convinced that, that Israel would once again be its own independent state. That it would not forever be under the rule of the Roman Empire. That it would once again be its own kingdom. And they were militant about it. And they they gave the Roman army one heck of a fight. And you read about the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. The Romans wanted to stick it to those Jewish zealots. They wanted them to suffer because they were a thorn in their side. These guys were by far the underdogs, but they were committed. They weren't terrorists like uh, uh, fundamental uh, Islamic extremists. But, but they were fighters. They were zealous for the restoration of Israel. They were committed. They, they had bought into it. They had drunk the Kool-Aid, so to speak. Well, we're not going to be serving Kool-Aid, but we are to be zealous, zealous, buy-in, fighting for good works. The opportunity to outdo others with love and honor and compassion because of what Christ has done. And God looks good because of this. Jesus looks good because of this. He came that He might have a people. He calls His people out of darkness into light. His people are focused on His return. Jesus' people make Him look good as they emulate Him, dying to self, laying down their lives, serving others, and glorifying the Father. And the only way we can do this is because Jesus 
did it for us. He redeemed us and has set us free to go and live the same. Paul tells Titus, declare these things. Declare these things. Declare what? Well, three times in the book of Titus, the gospel is laid out really clearly. Really clearly. At least three major parts And five times in the book of Titus, which I remind you is only three chapters, five times in three chapters, Paul says, have them be devoted to good works. Tell them to do good works. They are to be zealous for good works. The fruit of having your life trained by grace so that you're walking in light and you're being an obedient and faithful follower of the Master. Paul tells Titus, declare these things with all authority. Continue to lovingly be in people's faces telling them Christians aren't lazy. Christians are followers, not sitters. Not do-nothings. Christians are followers of Christ And you belong to Him. He has purchased you. You are not your own. You do not have an identity that is greater than your identity in Christ. That is your primary identity. When you are baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, you are baptized into the identity of your God and Savior, and you now live for His glory, and so you should do what brings glory and honor to Him devoted to and zealous for good works. This is part and parcel of the Christian life. And so a question for us to ask is, is our life being trained and shaped by grace, by this message of the Gospel, as we are awaiting the return of Christ, so that we are progressively growing in good works. Our schedule, our budget, our lives, our relationships are progressively being filled up with giving away and loving others and serving them and being less comfortable that others might be more comfortable. Is that what our lives are beginning to reflect? That's how the grace of God should be training us. Is that what's taking place? Has this message of grace, God's favor, God's kindness, has it appeared to us in such a way that it would transform us? If not, we need to revisit it. We need to say, God, make your light shine in the darkness of my heart and the darkness of my schedule and the darkness of my desires. Let your light shine in this darkness that it might change me, that I might be your one of your people living for your glory and your honor. This is what the gospel does in our lives. Not always immediately. Often, it takes a long time. A long obedience in the same direction. But it's what the work of grace, this message of grace does in us. Is that taking place in you? Has that happened in you? How is that being worked out in you?